This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Today, Peter's going to once again address what it looks like to live a godly life in a marginalized society. He's going to call us to suffer and suffer well. He's going to call us to bless others, regardless of how they treat us. So would you stand with me now as I read our scripture for today out of reverence and respect for the word. And I pray that you're encouraged and blessed by the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes a psalm. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this radical privilege of grace and mercy that we have to gather together with, with believers, with, with learners, with seekers, with doubters. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we have to, to not just gather together and sing together and, and worship through song and through giving and Lord, through, through welcoming each other. We can, we can worship through listening to the sermon. We, can, we have the, now the beautiful privilege of hearing your word spoken, your perfect word, the light being spoken into the dark areas of our world and of our hearts. Lord, help us not assume this and take this for granted or experience entitlement when we consider scripture, but let this blow us away this morning that we are sitting in a room with many Christians, with a Bible being read aloud, where something that so many people around the world cannot do today in the freedom that we have. Thank you for this. Let us not assume this. Thank you for this grace. Let us not just waste this time. Lord, help us engage in what's being spoken. Let open our ears so we can truly hear what's being said. Lord Spirit, please just speak to our hearts and change us and let us experience you in a unique way today. Experience your truth. Let lights come on in darkened areas of our hearts. Let understanding just happen where there's been ignorance. Lord, produce obedience, gospel-motivated obedience where there's apathy, 
lethargy, and disobedience. God, help us do these things. We can't do this on our own. None of this without your help and your guidance. Fuel us, strengthen us. Help us listen well to what you have to say to us. And would this be for your glory and our joy and the redemption of everyone in Middle Tennessee and around the world. We love you. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So the word finally is the first word that we have in verse 8. So this word finally, it comes after a significant portion of, of Peter's letter that he spent calling them to good conduct. If you've been with us for a couple weeks, you'll remember he's been saying, honor the emperor. Uh, he's been saying, respect and submit to your God-given authorities. Um, uh, honor their God-ordained authorities, whether the authorities are believers or not. Like he references even, even uh, living with a husband who's a Christian or, or maybe not a Christian, but still the call to honor and respect there. So this is a call here. It's packaged in this call for Christians then as well as today to live godly lives as we live as a marginalized people scattered for God's glory. He's speaking to where we are today. Finally, in light of this, pursue these things. Have these things among yourselves. And this is what being a blessing looks like. He said that you're to be a blessing for others. You're to bless and not curse. This is what it looks like is to live this lifestyle that he calls us to. Being a blessing is literally uh, living in such a way as to call down God's gracious power and love all around you, on the people around you, even those who wish to do you harm. That's what he's conveying when he says, bless. So to live like this is encouraged by knowing that Christians themselves will ultimately inherit God's blessing. And that's promised in the psalm that he quoted in the middle of his writing here in 1 Peter, Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. First, he says unity. He says pursue unity. Have unity of mind. This literally means have the same spirit. Being of the same mind. This is at the heart of what Paul, a writer of several of the books and letters that we have in the New Testament, that he wrote concerning Jesus and the church in Philippians 2, 2 through 5. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Harmonious. The same mind. Have harmony. Have, have unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. I mean, he's reiterating this unity big time, right? So do nothing from selfish ambition or independent gain or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his, only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul essentially summarizes it and says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So just, just live out who Jesus was and how he was. So the opposites of this unity that we have would be divisive. It would, it would be having a divisive spirit. It would be having a, a self-seeking spirit. It would be having a, a chirping spirit, if you would like someone who uses their words and actions to divide and not using their words and actions to unify. This comes out in a form of having contentious, a contentious spirit, a self-centered spirit, a self-absorbed spirit, 
a self-interested spirit. It's, it's that weird thing in us, this lack of unity is that weird thing in us that we feel, if you're honest, you feel this, when someone around you slips and falls in a moral sense, in a spiritual sense, we, we kind of feel like we have a leg up on them. It's like we can, we can judge them a little bit because we wouldn't fall like that. We wouldn't act like that. We wouldn't behave like that. That's the opposite of what's being called for here. Unity. This person typically has little to no thought about what affects the group, but just what looks in, out for their own interest. Very prevalent today in our culture. Next, he calls for sympathy, and this literally means taking on the feelings of another. This person who is sympathetic, doesn't. it's often that they don't say a lot. They don't say a lot when they're, when they're being sympathetic. They simply mourn with those who are hurting. They don't fill the silence with a lot of words. They just sit. They sit beside a person, and they don't feel like they have to say much. They're not insecure. They don't have to fill the silence with words. They just put their arm around someone who's hurting and seeks to comfort them by just being there. And if they say anything, it's just to let them know, hey, man, I'm with you in this. You're not alone. That's being sympathetic in that way. And in doing this, they're in the flesh what God is in our spirit, according to Psalm 34, 18. He is near the brokenhearted. Just near, just being close. That says everything for this portion of what it looks like to be sympathetic towards one another. What I find intriguing here is that, that Peter is writing this, again, to churches that are scattered around, Christians who are scattered around experiencing marginalization, and he's telling them how to live together in unity, being sympathetic towards one another. He's telling them, here's how you're going to last. You're going to last through this marginalization. The church will prosper, and the gates of hell will not come against it, and here's part of what it's going to look like for the church to survive. It's for us to be unified. It's for us to be sympathetic towards one another. This applies to where we are and as we face the uncharted waters of the church in America that we're facing. We need to pursue unity. We need to be praying for these things to be made manifest in our lives individually and in our lives as a church. The opposites of this being sympathy is one who fails to feel and, and rather just offers a quick solution. We well, you know this wouldn't have happened if, or next time, you know, I'm not saying it changes anything, but next time you need to, and you just lay it out there. It's like just, they come across unintentionally often as someone who's cold, who's assuming, who's unmoved, and the, the, the one who's mourning feels unsupported, kind of alone. It's like they just want to move on to what's next without the proper mourning and lament. We're called here by Peter, by God, to be people of sympathy. Next, he says, Christians, church, pursue brotherly love. Have love for Christians. Compassion is central here. Taking action to make another's life better. How can I make your life better? The opposite of this, of course, is, is envy. Envy shuts this down. Jealousy kills brotherly love. A form of this comes out in gossiping, slandering, chirping, being sarcastic even. Maybe, maybe saying the right thing without helping to do the right thing. A lot of talk, but no action, no help. Pursue brotherly love. Next, he moves on to tender hearts. 
And this is a unique term. He's, Peter's bringing a new Christian meaning to an old Greek word for courageous. It was a very common word then, but he's putting a new and unique usage to this word. And it, it literally means to, to have courage that's produced from having a very jolly soul and spirit. It's like from the depths of who you are, your outlook on life, your joy, your deep-seated joy that comes across as almost being jolly, right? It's kind of the, the wording that I've found in studying this term. It produces courage in people. It's almost like a resolve that we're going to get through this. And it produces like, oh yeah, we are. Yeah, I, I should be excited about this. Yeah, okay. It's just that contagious spirit that produces courage in others. So the opposite of what he's asking for here is discouragement. It's the one who evokes fear or dread or anxiety on someone else. It's the opposite of what he's pulling for here. He's wanting tender hearts or, or literally a, a jolly, courageous, contagious spirit. And then he moves on to humble minds. Having meek and modest thoughts about yourself. Not thinking of yourself as mighty or great or expecting others to look at you as mighty or great. Not getting upset when people don't think that you're as awesome as you think that you are. So this is a call to have a modest concern for yourself and an and overinflated concern for others. The opposite of this would be pride and arrogance, a snobbery, perhaps only using others and never serving others. Maybe entitlement is, is at the heart of what this would, the opposite of what a humble mind would be. And then finally, he, he, he gives us several words here that can be summarized as don't seek revenge and don't hold a grudge. Rather, and he tells us what this looks like, bless one another, even when they don't deserve it. And then he says, this is your calling. You know, in my years of ministry, this has come up to a lot, a lot to me. It's like, I just want to know my purpose. I want to know my calling. Like you say that you're called to pastor, you're called to plant a church. What's my calling? Well, we're all called to certain things in scripture, all of us. If you're a Christian, you're called to sanctification. Very explicit. Your sanctification is God's will for your life, for you to become more and more like Jesus. And here we have another calling. So you can just nail like this is, this is part of your calling. I know that I'm, I'm called to make much of Jesus. I know that I'm called to be sanctified, to pursue Jesus and to look like Jesus. And now here, I know that I'm called to bless people who curse me. This is my calling. Christian, this is your calling, to bless those who curse you. It's your calling. Not just a certain group of Christians. This is for Christians, to bless others when they don't deserve it. You see, this is a gospel calling. This is modeled for us by Jesus, loving us when we deserve wrath. Now, this type of love is only possible by his spirit working in us. And when we are constantly becoming more and more aware of how Jesus loves us and what he accomplished for us. To use an umbrella term, all-encompassing term, to live out our gospel identity. Who Jesus is and what he's made us living in light of the gospel, living in our gospel identity. All this, living this, is not come from our own strength. Living this out, living the Christian life, blessing those who curse us is only possible by a work of the Spirit in our heart, in our lives, and a constant growing awareness of our gospel identity. 
to bless others. It literally means to speak good words to someone, to give good to. In other words, you're existing to benefit them. They don't exist to benefit you. That will be them blessing you. He calls to bless them, praise them, kind words, honest words, being positive with them, and you will inherit a blessing for living this way. So it's as if Peter, excuse me, is providing additional motivation for these early Christians to live out their calling to encourage this type of living. I see Peter referencing back chapter 2, verse 23, when he was speaking of Jesus. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, his father. And Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 6, 27 and 28. Love your enemies. Think about those words. Don't just gloss over those words. <laughs> Love your enemies. You see what we're called to do there. Jesus said this, right? It's, it's important that we hear the words of Jesus and live in light of them. This wasn't just an idea for some. This isn't the varsity Christian's calling. He's calling Christians, love your enemies. You can't do that. Uh, you should feel that on your own, but just in case you feel like you can do that, I'm just going to tell you, you can't. On your own, you can't love your enemies. There's not a person in here that can love your enemies on your own. But he continues, do good to those who hate you. Malicious intent, those who want harm done to you, like a predator sense. You can't do that. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. He's giving us antitheticals. He's giving us complete opposites. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus models this perfectly as he hangs on the cross being the sacrifice for us giving his life up for his enemies to make them his friends and brothers and sisters. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are my enemies. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The ones crying crucify, forgive them. If you don't forgive any, forgive these guys right here that just crucified me. Forgive them for they just they don't they don't know the big picture certainly christians will receive the full blessing of eternity with god in paradise but there's something that peter's saying there's something that the psalmist says here in the psalm that he quotes or something that david gets at in that psalm that that implies there's 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 a blessing and favor upon the life that's pursuing godliness and sanctification that's pursuing jesus and making him famous there's certain reward, there's certain blessing that we get to experience in this life as we pursue holiness and godly living. And, and the fact and comfort for the Christian is that God's eyes are always on his children, keeping them safe. His ears are open to them to hear and answer their prayers. And this is a radical blessing. Now, none of us drift to godly living. None of us drift to pursuing 
brotherly affection, brotherly love. None of us drift to being truly sympathetic. None of us drift to having unity of mind. I mean, he's writing to Christians, but he's also writing to the churches. So he's writing, he's writing to a group of people. I mean, it's hard to have unity of mind with two people, much less hundreds of people. He's saying this is possible. Have unity of mind. Have sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, humble minds. Don't seek revenge. Don't seek justice. Don't hold a grudge. There's something bigger at play than this. There's something bigger than play than you. He's writing this to Christians. He's writing this to churches. And he knows that they can't just drift there or he wouldn't have to say it. He's coaching them, speaking to them, directing them to this. We will not drift to be these things. You will drift to be selfish and self-centered. And if anything, you'll drift to be able to cloak just enough of Christianity around that to persevere in the church as someone who is wise and noble and humble, yet still very divisive and cunning under the surface. Because you simply can't live this out. And you're not just going to arrive here one day. This is an intentional pursuit. You can't white-knuckle godliness and holiness. It's not sustainable. You can't love your enemies. You can't dig deep enough and do better to love your enemies by yourself. You can't just hope to get better and get better. The only way, a work, the only way this is possible is for God to do a work in your life where your life becomes more centered upon Jesus and has nothing to do with your performance, good or bad. If you hear this and you think, man, I'm nailing this. Like, I'm a, I'm a sympathetic person. Perhaps you even describe yourself as this on some sort of resume. That you're a sympathetic person, that you're a loving person, that you're gentle. Like, and we, like, we, we think that we're like this. You can read this, and if you're not looking at what it's truly calling you for, you can walk out thinking, it's pretty good. I'm on that. Five out of six, not bad. Or you could do something that's equally as foolish and dangerous and think, boy, I'm so glad so-and-so's in here. I hope they're really listening to this part. Or, man, I'm going to send the podcast to somebody because they really need to hear this part. And I don't want you to leave here hearing this and think to yourself, man, I need to get my stuff together. I'm a failure. I'm not doing this Christian life at all right. I'm going to do better. And you take shame and you take guilt and you make it, it's a powerful motivator. You can accomplish a lot with guilt and shame. But you can't accomplish freedom. What I want you to do is hear this and leave today thinking, man, I want to get closer to Jesus. I want to know Jesus more. I want to know what he did for me. I want to study the truths of the gospel more. I want to get closer to him because he's really the only one that, that can help me love others. And if I really think about it, Jesus is the only one who actually did do this perfectly. He modeled it perfectly. And we have his words on record that he actually prayed for forgiveness upon those who were crucifying him. And not only that, he promises to give his spirit to produce strength and courage and ability to live out what is being called for here. So I want to get Jesus, not white knuckle, not thinking about somebody else and not leaving with shame, but leaving with the resolve to know Jesus better. It's Jesus, not about your performance. It's Jesus. 
and his performance. So Peter continues this. Look in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, now that righteousness doesn't necessarily, it's not meaning to be justified by God for righteousness sake. It's not for you to be sinless. It's talking about a very general moral living, godly living, living the Christian life. But even if you should suffer for living the Christian life, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And this is central here for, for, for our time. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, as different, as other, as supreme, as treasure. Right? Honor, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it, careful here, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Then he throws in this interesting phrase, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Persecution will likely become much more aggressive in the days and years ahead for the Christian. In our day, as well as, as Peter, I mean, literally two years later, he's a martyr. And his, he's all but history. But Peter finds comfort here knowing that it cannot, persecution cannot ultimately do injury to the Christian. In fact, the experience of persecution, he says, can lead to blessing, and the outcome can be left in God's hands, who is over all things. So it's God that watches over his own children and the one who's watching over the persecutors. So believers are urged to not be frightened. Don't be frightened. Why be overly concerned when God is aware? When God is aware, when, when we know that God is good and we know that he's in control, why be frightened? You see, Peter's offering us some extremely practical help for our situations that we live in right now. The thing that we're coming so hard to come to grips with, the thing that we're struggling with, the thing that causes so much fear, anxiety, and frustration, he's offering a remedy here. He's saying that the remedy to fear is found in giving Jesus Christ the special, unique place that is his at the center of our lives. It's there that he is to reign as sovereign Lord. And such a true fear and awe of Jesus, expressing itself out in both godly behavior and a well-thought-out understanding of God's sovereignty, it will drive out the lesser fears and anxieties and eventually shame the persecutors. This will happen. Things begin to take on a different perspective when you see who Jesus is and what he has truly accomplished, reigning over all things. His Father who brings about His plan and nothing can stop His plan. It's beautiful to rest in this as you face different trials and sufferings and marginalizations. Peter says to not fear the persecutors. He says don't worry about them. Don't have an unsettled heart because of circumstances, but rather settle your hearts on Christ. That's the remedy that he's giving us. Either it's bogus 
or it's helpful. The only way that you can endure hard times of evil and suffering is to have your heart and life anchored in Jesus and the good news of what he's done for you, your gospel identity. That is how you can endure hard times in life. That's how you're going to endure marginalization. That's a beautiful way to face the fear and anxiety that's controlling you. And as you live this life, the life of the Christian, as you honor and fear Christ above all others, as you seem to have this unshakableness about you, you're not Superman, you're not Wonder Woman, you still get hit, it still hurts, but it doesn't rattle you like it does me. It causes me to lean in and say, what's different? What are you on? How can you, how can you find joy in death of a loved one? How do you have peace amidst so much chaos? How does that happen? You see, it'll be attractive when you suffer well, when you have, when the Spirit works in you to produce such an acknowledgement of Jesus being Lord and God ruling and reigning and all other authorities are under him, when that plays out, there's a certain humble confidence that's produced in you and it's compelling. When something hits me, I get rattled, I, I, I just, I go to the depths of the depths, but you, you continue to put one foot in front of the other. You're not a marathon runner, you're not killing it, but I just notice that you continue fighting. You get knocked down, but you keep getting back up. What is that? In living this way, Peter's time and our time, it's going to be countercultural. And when others ask you of where you get your dynamic and profound hope from, you tell them about Jesus. You don't tell them about your personality. You tell them about Jesus. You don't talk to them about an inner strength. You talk to them about Jesus. Be obedient to talk about Jesus, but do this with gentleness and do this with so much respect and tact and humility so that others can't discount your approach. In other words, don't knock your own leg out from under you as you get to the place where people are actually asking, and you don't take credit for it because you sweep your own legs out from under you. Don't be arrogant. Be respectful. Be humble. And tell them about Jesus. And then in doing this, the false accusers, they're going to be disappointed. That's what it means to be put to shame. They're going to be disappointed that they can't, they can't truly convict you of doing anything wrong in this way. And by the way, something I found interesting is the phrase, ask you for a reason, literally means ask for a word of your hope. It's a word play that he's using with the word logos. John 1.1, 1, 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of Jesus He's using a word play to say, hey, when people ask you for a word, you better give them the word. Give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give them the hope and the message that is above all other messages and all other hopes. Give them Jesus. And what's heavily implied here is that the people of God aren't locked in their homes out of fear. What's heavily implied here is that the Christians, they're not out making enemies of people who aren't like them. What's heavily implied here is that the people of God, they're living intentional lives scattered throughout the city, involved in meaningful relationships with people who have yet to place their hope in Jesus. Who else would ask you for the hope that you have if they don't have the hope? It's people who don't have the hope. So when they, 
see the hope that's in you, they're compelled to ask, why do you have joy in tragedy? How do you smile and cry at the same time? Where does this come from? You don't mourn like other people mourn. What is this? And you give them the word of hope. You give them the good news of Jesus. Peter also tells us to be willing to suffer for being good, knowing that that may be God's plan for you. So here, just being practical, if your theology, if your idea of God has no room for God to use suffering in your life, but only like ease and comfort and prosperity, humbly, yet I believe accurately, I say, you simply don't understand the teachings that's found in the Bible. Suffering is used by God. Suffering is for our ultimate good. Suffering is our calling. Many times throughout Scripture, this rings true, not just here. We see suffering produce good when we see the greatest moment of suffering in all of humanity's history, when God died on a cross. It gets no darker than that. It gets no more suffering than that. And yet, where do we find the greatest good in all of history of humanity? Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. If he can produce good from the greatest bad, he can produce good from your bad. Be willing to suffer for being good, knowing that it may be God's plan for you. After all, this is what Jesus did. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once, and it literally means once and for all. There's a better reading of that. Hopox in the Greek. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. These verses have, it's a complex thought, the most complex thought in the letter, and it's all wrapped around the concept of suffering. Peter's been preparing his readers for future suffering, and he anticipates that that they may assume the common reaction to suffering, which is, why? What a waste. Why would this be allowed? So Peter points to the suffering of Jesus and and points out the, the good that came from the suffering as a way of encouraging them through suffering, knowing that God can produce good through their own suffering. Jesus brings us to God. Jesus is raised from the dead. This is from his own words here. Jesus makes possible the cleansing and salvation that baptism symbolizes. Jesus is raised, ascended to the preeminent position of power and glory, reigning over all things as king of kings and lord of lords. And this came through the deepest amount of suffering, the darkest moments of suffering in all of humanity's history. Such suffering, the suffering of Jesus was obviously far from pointless. But it's the pattern here that we see can, can be lived out in our lives too. Not us dying for other people to, to experience forgiveness. Not in that sense. But suffering leading to glory can be played out in our lives. There's redemption to our suffering. There's something that we do get to look forward to with our suffering. That God is somehow using this for his glory. Here in verse 18, we have one of the most succinct yet, yet powerful statements in the entire New Testament on the magnificent doctrine of the atonement. 
Jesus is seen as dealing with the problem of humanity's broken relationship with God here in providing himself. You see, we cannot provide this reconciliation with God on our own. There's nothing that we could ever do to ever repair the damage that's been done by our sin. Yet, God graciously steps in and takes over for us when we would never, ever have reason for hope of having our relationship restored. He does what's needed to do that. Jesus lived the perfect life for us as our representative, living perfectly in our place. Jesus gave up his life for us, granting us forgiveness for our sins. As he bore the very wrath of God on himself, in this way it was propitiatory. He was shouldering the burden of the wrath of God that was ours. We deserve that wrath. and He took it instead, and he was our propitiation, meaning he was our wrath sponge, our wrath absorber. The wrath of God was poured out in our sin, and we don't catch it. Yet we deserve it. Jesus catches it, all of it, so that Romans 8, 1 can ring true forever. For those that are in Christ, there is now no condemnation, no shame, no more guilt, no more wrath, no more finger pointing from God because Jesus did what Peter says he did. He suffered in our place for our sins. The price of sin is death, but the gift of God is life because of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become good enough because he took our place. This is what theologians consider the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. His righteousness for our sin. We get what we don't deserve. Jesus gets what he doesn't deserve. We get what he deserves. He gets what we deserve. We have much reason to celebrate Jesus specifically here when we consider substitutionary atonement, where he provides the way back to the Father. As in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I'm the gate. I'm the one. I'm the door. There is no other way to the Father but through me. And Jesus provides this for us. Here, Peter's reflecting back to Isaiah 53 in verse 6, where he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Jesus, on the cross, bearing our sin. He has laid upon him the iniquity and sin of us all. It's there on the cross that Jesus dies spiritually, he dies physically. He died physically. His heart stopped. His lungs ceased. Any doctor would say, dead. He did this for us. He died spiritually. We see this where he underwent separation from God that was brought upon by him, bearing our sin upon himself. We see this expressed as he speaks of this abandonment on the cross, this spiritual brokenness in Mark 15, 34, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this spiritual death is an annihilation where the, the mind, soul, and spirit is dissolved. So once Jesus had undergone in full God's judgment for sin, his spirit was, was released from the body. He utters his last cry out on the cross. 
According to Mark 15, 37, this is a vivid metaphor for him breathing out his spirit. And on the third day, that spirit returned to resume the body of Jesus at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is proving that the sacrifice of Jesus was deemed as good enough. It was deemed as sufficient. It it, it accomplished what it needed to accomplish. And that the power of death was crushed for his people and himself forever. This is our hope. How do you press through marginalization? You press into your gospel identity of what Jesus Christ has done for you. How do you, as the holidays come about and we experience family dynamics that are unique, to say the least, some Christians experience so much hostility and I hear about it and I I pray for those people who, who I know about who goes through this stuff through the holidays and it's difficult. In that sense, you're being marginalized. What's your hope? Is it getting in the last word to prove that you're right at the dinner table? It's digging to the depths of the gospel truths. It's not in trying to prove everyone wrong and yourself right. It's not in trying to win every argument. It's not in producing guilt. It's not in being a recluse either. It's, to, it's with respect and humility telling the truth of the gospel. It's understanding your gospel identity, speaking it, living it out. How do you face the fears of your life? I mean, I'm thinking Peter's writing this to encourage people that were afraid of this marginalization, this ridicule, this coming persecution. He says, Jesus, look at what Jesus has done. Can't get over Jesus. There is nothing greater to place your hope in. There is nothing greater to process, to produce true change. There isn't. The gospel isn't like a JV doctrine where once you get it, you move on to the greater things in the Christian life, and that like no longer speaks into your world anymore? No, 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 no. The gospel is what informs our suffering. The gospel truth helps bring such a beautiful resolve and peace in the midst of storms that we find ourselves in life. It is the doctrine that we must hang everything that we have in our life, in our hearts upon. It's how we're going to, it's how the church of God in America, it's how the Christian church is going to face the marginalization that's coming at us in the future. Right here. The power of the gospel being believed and applied to our unbelief, to our marginalizing situations, to our fears, to our anxieties. That's it. Jesus, thank you for this time that we've had today in your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit truly does guide the minds and hearts of your people into a greater understanding of what you've done and how it affects them today. Lord, help the gospel be the windshield that they view everything through and not simply a mirror that they look back at. Would help be something that, that just speaks into everything that they that they go through, that they suffer through in life. Lord, be with those who are weary and tired. Lord, be with those who just simply don't know how they're going to persevere the Christian life, and it's just a miracle 
that they're here this morning, that they're even a Christian. Lord, they're discouraged, heavy. Would they understand your sympathy and your grace and your mercy and your compassion this morning? Would they be reminded of just how deeply they're loved because of seeing what you sent your son to experience on their behalf and for them? Lord God, bring clarity to people's circumstance and suffering. Lord, bring remedy to the fear. Lord, bring hope to those who are hopeless. And would all this come through a growing awareness of just how perfectly you repaired all things, especially our relationship with your Father. Help that actually make a big difference in our lives as we live this week. God bless your people here. Let the gospel become the big idea for our people and not just our church. Jesus, become a big deal to every heart individually and not just our church collectively. Help us in this, Jesus. Love on your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.